Welcome to AI, Government and the Future, a podcast by Corner Alliance. We explore the intersection of artificial intelligence, government and the future with your host, Alan Pence. We work with government to create results. We ignite your agency's mission by helping you to design and implement high impact and innovative federal programs in AI, broadband, cybersecurity, public safety and more. Being a government ally is at the core of all we do. Introducing your host, Alan Pence. Welcome to the podcast. Today we have with us Arnold Kling. So I'm going to say I love all my guests, but Arnold is definitely my favorite ever. I read his Substack every day. The guy is the biggest polymath I think I've ever seen. He is a PhD trained economist from MIT studied with like some of the most brilliant people in the world. He has worked deep within the bowels of our government system. So at the Fed and you were at Freddie Mac. Yeah, before it was famous. Yeah, exactly. Before it got famous. He didn't see, you got out long before it got screwed. You have good timing, it seems like. You get out before these things collapse, right? Then saw the rise of the internet revolution, started a real estate startup called Homefair. Uh, 94, so really early in that trend, picked it perfectly, exited in 99, right? Right before the whole thing collapsed. That was even better timing. I mean, that was incredible, right? And then he's taught at Mercatus Center with people like uh, Tyler Cowen. And I guess you officially retired a couple of years ago, but he writes a very active Substack, And I think the kind of things you cover, it's just, it's incredible. You can have such knowledge, but... If you want to talk about somebody who knows government with the intersection of technology and AI, this is this is the perfect person. So Arnold, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So given you obviously have this wealth of experience, talk to us a little bit. I got really intrigued with your AI stuff early on. You started immediately experimenting once ChatGPT came out. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, I mean, obviously AI has been around for a while. We know that, but we saw the kind of the new generative AI breakout moment this time last year. So what's been your sort of impression of it and what have you been doing with it and how have you been learning from it? Okay, so first of all, my last computer science course that I took was more than 50 years ago. So probably not a whole lot of that remains relevant today. You know, humans are a different species than other animals. Our ability to communicate with one another and to use tools has just you know, enabled us to take over the earth. We can decide whether it's safer to be a tiny little dog walking down the street or a mountain lion, and we've decided it's actually safer for the dog because they, you know, we don't allow mountain lions. So we're really very different species. And there's a view that artificial intelligence is going to be another species. And so you have the doomers who say that, and maybe some of the evangelists who say that, and I'm just, I'm not ready to jump on that train. I still think of it as, as a software tool. It's part of our tools. It's not a different species on the planet. So you're kind of saying no to those V Moskowitz sort of doomer thing and to the Mark Andreessen, this is like the future of the world. Yeah, I'm neither with Ray Kurzweil on the super singularity train and I'm not with uh, Eliezer Yudkowsky on the, you know, it's going to kill us all train. Again, 
I can be wrong about anything. The other sort of impression I have is that this is about where the web was 30 years ago. And again, I could be wrong. It may fizzle, it may be something completely different, but that's kind of the analogy that I'm looking at. And even if the analogy is right, it was impossible for anybody to predict the web where it would go uh, in early 19, you know, 30 years ago, uh, early 1994. I think at that time, Bill Gates didn't think it was going anywhere. I mean, there were all these people who didn't. Paul Krugman thought that the internet would ultimately have the impact of a fax machine. Probably not his favorite prediction, but people had all sorts of wrong ideas, and I, I could give you some of mine, but I'll spare you that. But anyway, that's my basic sort of intuition about it. And of course, if it is like the web in 1994, it means that you know, over the next several years, I mean, the web in, in early 1994, hardly anyone could use it. Lots of people didn't know about it, and it couldn't do very much. All the things that you take for granted being able to do now, you, you couldn't do. The, the software hadn't been developed. And I think we're kind of in the same place where there are, there's, there's certainly a cult of people, probably include me, who's very excited about it and who's talking, you know, in very excited terms about it. You've got a lot of people, probably the bulk of the population that either doesn't know about it or has never tried it. So that's where these, uh, these large language models are at, at this point. So I found it very interesting, though, you started experimenting with it in various situations, right? So I think you quickly realize the value of it as a, for instance, a teaching tool, right? So some of your early stuff was, how do I get people to interact with it? They actually can learn more from using it to find answers to questions than actually giving people, like teaching people in a traditional way. So talk a little bit about how you saw that early on. Okay, well, you know, one of my long-time hopes is that people will learn in different ways than the sort of industrial era school. A lot of people have that hope and that fantasy. And in fact, ever since, certainly since television, visionaries have been wide-eyed about the possibilities of people learning in different ways, mostly been disappointed. What I think the potential advantage that I've come to view this as having is why do people need a teacher in a classroom? And I think it's like a lot for sort of motivation and feedback. And you know, if you're, if you're watching a, a YouTube video, you can learn a, a lot, but you can't get the kind of motivation, feedback, and guidance. Like, what do I do next? I mean, you can use a YouTube video to help you install a car seat, but to sort of go through the course of your life and say, all right, what should I do next? What should I study next? How can I learn this? You don't get that. You have to, you're on your own. The potential for these chatbots is that they can get to know you personally and they can relate to you in a way that's personal to you. So that's a potential. It, it hasn't yet been realized, and I may be wrong about it, it being possible, but that's certainly a very intriguing possibility. Mark Andreessen talks about maybe a, you know, a young child will have a chatbot companion that will just go through that child's whole life giving it advice and telling it what to learn next and helping it learn. 
And I was really intrigued. I, I mean, I thought it was a really great insight in keeping with that sort of tutor aspect is, hey, if I go do a prompt contest with a bunch of whatever people you're trying to teach something, kids or people at the office, and I say, why did the War of 1812 start? And you go into ChatGPT and start interacting and finding. And then and then the goal of the contest is to have the most, in, say it's the most interesting or most complete or most whatever thing you're trying to maximize explanation. I think your contention was they might walk away with more information and knowledge about the causes of the War of 1812 than they would have taking an entire class on that. Is that sort of how you feel still? Like a year? That's probably, you said that probably eight, 10 months ago, something like that. I think the only reason I would be less enthusiastic about that now is that I'm probably a little more enthusiastic about other things. You know, in that 1812 case, maybe you would have the, the student construct a movie. Uh, maybe you would have them interview simulated characters, talk with Andrew Jackson or whatever. So I think the things that excite me now are these possibilities of creating sort of synthetic characters like the, you know, Tyler Cowan early on did a conversations with Tyler with Jonathan Swift, you know, who's from the early 1700s. And that becomes possible. And that, that's a really intriguing possibility in all sorts of dimensions. And it's interesting what you mentioned, Tyler, because, you know, he just talked a little bit about his greatest of all time economist book and how he set it up sort of as an interactive AI chatbot. How have you seen that experiment go? I, have, I, I thought it was a little more limited than I would have expected. It may be. You could imagine being even more open-ended, have him, you know, talk to these people. Okay, Thomas Maltus, what would you say about today? And, you know, just see what the chatbot comes up with. But just the notion that it's interactive and you can explore it any way you want, choose your own adventure, as it were, in exploring it, I think that's just a great idea because a typical linear book now, it's just too long, has too many things in it that the author feels like they belong in there, but the reader says, oh, come on, can't I skip that? So having the reader choose their own adventure in a book, I mean, I actually think that, you know, I feel like I've seen the future. I can't imagine the old-fashioned linear book surviving, that ultimately they will look more interactive. I'd looked at that goat book and I was like, this really needs to be a interactive history of economics LLM or something like that, you know, like, like keeping it to like this goat theme seemed almost like still old thinking in some ways. But, but what you just said there, it was very reminiscent of people talked about this with the web, right? The, you know, the linking. And so you would go on these patterns of learning through links and in some ways that's happened, right? But in other ways, it hasn't at all. Do you see like a similar analogy where like maybe the, some of the things we're looking at might fail the same way that did or that prediction did? Oh, I'm sure a lot will. I mean, even my impressions like eight, nine months ago have changed a lot. Again, if you'd asked anyone to make predictions 30 years ago about what would happen with the web, they would have been way off. And I think you just have to realize that that's where we are now. In some ways, there were predictions made in the past that 
AI has actually fulfilled, right? So I, I think of it as, I think we, maybe we talked about that interactive journey through information on, you know, using the World Wide Web. In a way, the large language model might actually be the thing that enables that. The technology wasn't there to meet the vision, really. So, and, and then today, I thought really interesting. So you talked about what you think is now the superpower of LLMs, which I think is a slightly different point than we've talked about so far. Right. That's something I didn't have eight or nine months ago. And that idea is that, you know, up until now, if you wanted to use a computer, you had to talk the computer's language. You had to translate in, you know, your goals into back in the day, Fortran, now it would be Java or whatever. And these things really allow you to communicate in English. I was on a bus several months ago. This is shortly after these things came out and it was next to a professional computer programmer and he was working on an app for himself the way professional computer programmers do and he was stuck with something so he just asked chat gpt how to fix it and it said do this and so he did that and he said well it didn't work exactly the way i wanted it did this and i want this he got the answer well that used to be i guess there were things like github and so on where there were these libraries that a programmer could look at that to ask each other questions those things are dying out because you can now do that and there are just all these instances of people who used to spend a lot of time doing coding, now letting ChatGPT or, or Copilot or Microsoft Copilot or something do that. That's just a real change. But what's more interesting, I think, is the ability to do that you know, with things like draw me an image like this. And I think pretty soon it will be make a movie like this or bring this, you know, create a character like this. And then I think that this is something that's controversial. There's, there are people arguing both sides. But I think the most interesting thing is to be able to talk to a physical machine like a robot and be able to talk to it in English. So instead of you know, having to write a code to get a robot to do something, you get to a point where you can talk to it. And if that pans out, that is, and, and there's some people who think that'll pan out within the next few years, that will just really, really change robotics. Robotics will just be a, a big part of people's lives if it gets to the point where you can just talk to it in plain language and not have to write code. I mean, I think some people may have gotten ahead of this prediction, but it does strike me that most software gets abstracted at this point, that you don't really need software. You just create it on the fly out of whatever data you want. You know, we're not there yet, but it does strike me that most SaaS software models seem kind of endangered at this point. I just saw something where there's a huge amount of banking software that's still in COBOL. And it sat there and sat there and sat there while the number of COBOL programmers went down like this. And so, but now you can direct one of these large language models, put that into Java so that people will understand it and will work better. I mean, if you'd had something like that several years ago, the Obamacare website would never have crashed. 
because I'm pretty sure it crashed because there was an attempt to layer contemporary software on some really old systems at the IRS and other places. Of course. So you transitioned us right into the key topic of this podcast, which is how AI is going to impact government. So we've looked at it from a couple of standpoints. I want to talk about both, but so from, from a techno, not a regulatory standpoint, from a technological standpoint, what do you see AI doing that either challenges the government and its ability to deliver or will be a huge enabler and maybe does it the same thing? Well, what I just talked about could be an enabler because there, there's a lot of very, very old software that because it works, everyone's afraid to touch it, but it means it can't be improved. So that possibility is there. Every large organization struggles with customer support, and those customer support calls are so frustrating. The menu systems, you know, if you want to do this, do one. So I think the ability to make those more human and more responsive, and obviously a lot cheaper, is a huge and almost immediately doable. So the IRS being currently sort of overwhelmed, I mean, I can't imagine if you call the IRS, you can get an answer within you know, any reasonable time. That could really change and change pretty rapidly. I, don't, I, I mean, I would think that would be like a three to six month project. Now, of course, I always... I think it's a weekend project. I mean, I, I was working with a guy who was, uh, it was on the help desk as a programmer, you know, helping build software for Sam.gov on the government side. And ChatGPT came out. It was, this is 3.5. And over the weekend, he took all the help desk articles that they have out for Sam and their backlog of customer support requests is months long, right? And just put them into like a vector database and started a rudimentary chatbot with it. And it was incredible. I mean, I literally typed in on the web, on their interface, do I need to get a cage code? And it gave me 10 articles that didn't directly address that issue. They were about cage codes, but they didn't tell me whether I needed it. And I typed it into the chatbot and it said, you only need a cage code if you meet one of these three conditions. I was like, wow, that was a weekend. That probably saves half, 80% of their customer support requests. So it sounds like there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. Then I started trying to think through some guests we've talked about, like, can, how is AI going to help in policy and rulemaking going forward? So some of the ideas that have come out is, can we create avatars or large language models for particular interest groups? And so then we can have them debate things, right? Can we get, you know, in a rulemaking, can we get to 98% in 10 minutes because we know what everybody's going to say? And then we can be efficient with the last. Where do, you, where do your mind go on these kind of like big governmental functions that impact our, our lives every day? I guess I, I haven't put a whole lot of bandwidth into that. So yeah, I'd have to kind of do that on the spot. I think you know, one of the challenges with these chatbots is you know this deep fake phenomenon or multivariate spam. So I, th I think if, if they stick, for example, with their old procedures of, of having comments, you could easily get spammed in your comments. I think in general, there's probably going to be a lot of Red Queen kind of games where people are going to try to game the government system and the government's going to have to be a lot more agile than it usually is in being able to anticipate and fight off the gaming. I mean, you think about the lawsuits, comments, 
could even have an instance where, you know, if AI discovers a million cures to diseases, can, what happens to the FDA at that point? You know, oh. it strikes me that for good and bad, the government is going to have to, it, there's going to be this forcing function of the amount of stuff coming in that's going to force them to adopt this technology. Because it seems the only answer is more AI, right, on the other side. Yeah, and they're going to have to take advantage of the opportunities to be able to have much richer, quicker reaction times in conversations with, with the public would be the big opportunity. So I think from your perspective, I'd really like to get your opinion on this. So something, you know, you also write a lot about modern culture wars over woke, progressive, conservative, libertarian, right? So one thing I'd started thinking about is what if AI tells us all these solutions to problems, but we just don't want to hear the solution. Is that a, it strikes me as a large risk that we won't get the benefits of AI because it will tell us things we don't want to hear. I don't know yet what class of problems this can solve. Again, I think of the big uses as, you know, there's this big entertainment slash possibly slash education use of being able to impersonate all sorts of people or create you know weird combinations of people or people have already found weird drawings and stuff. But sort of the things that we think of as problem solving you know, I haven't really tried to work that out myself. Say, you know, okay, here's a, an interesting problem. Like in my essay today on Substack, I, I was just randomly saying, oh, what would be a good question to ask that I can follow up with? How would you come up with that answer? And so just the first question I came to mind was, you know, how would you fix the electoral system? And all it did was recapitulate some ideas that people uh, have already had. When the problem can be solved by searching a big database, like, you know, coming up with a new protein or something in biochemistry or materials science, I can imagine just the ability to process so many options in large data, I think it can help. But when you're talking about complex social problems, I wouldn't assume that it's going to be able to come up with anything that's magical. And do you think that's just the level of data that's available that's useful? You know, the, the challenge in social policy to me is like unintended side effects, complexity of the system. You don't, you know, if you push here, you don't know, you know, you may have a very small effect and you have to push over here at the same time. And I just think that that complexity is as much of a problem for a large language model as it is for you or me. That's an interesting perspective. I hadn't thought about it that way. You know, an example I was giving was uh, Steve Levitt. He's done a paper and then an experiment where they're putting GPS-enabled ankle bracelets on criminal offenders. And in exchange, they it's a pilot with Cook County. They get out of prison, and I don't know what level of crime they've committed or whatever. But the theory being that if people know they're going to get caught, they don't commit crimes. And so if you can then GPS locate them, which apparently current wrist monitors or like ankle monitors don't do, you can basically prevent them from committing crimes. And it seems to have worked in this trial, but no one likes the answer. Not progressives, not conservatives. So the progressives think it's an invasion of this person's privacy, the oppressed person, right? And then the conservatives want to punish them and throw them in jail. Well, I guess that's where I'm the libertarian. I mean, I'm willing to believe that prison is like torture. It's something that is ought to be retrograde and eliminated, you know, eliminating it with a way that 
prevents further crime. And if this works, yeah, I mean, I'd be all for that. But it's an example to me of like here that we already have solutions that we know we could show with data are true, but people just don't want to adopt them because they don't like it. This is what I think the big problem in policymaking is going to be with AI. And then, of course, you know, people are going to do what they do normally. It's like, I got an AI that says something different because I put this set of things into it versus your AI. So, you know, I guess we'll have AI wars. Yeah, but that's but that's a case where you're using the AI in a kind of data-driven way. The reason that humans can't let everyone out of jail is that the cost of you know having a human spy walk next to you would be ridiculous, but having a, an AI spy uh, is there. I think the slippery slope there is, and this may be why you know, I'd be a little bit sympathetic with the progressives, although not much, is that if it becomes really easy and seemingly humane to track violent criminals, then you just start lowering the bar to nonviolent criminals, to just ordinary citizens. And that, that would be a fear with that. That's a big opportunity. And, and then, the, yeah, so that raises the question, you know, suppose something, uh, you know, the next generation of Khan Academy or something else uh, actually became the the better educational tool would people resist it because well i didn't you know i grew up in a school and you know it was fine for me so why does or it doesn't benefit them right <laughs> and actually that's actually interesting could you would this enable this more um skill you could have some sort of not controlled by the person necessarily but if google and microsoft set up some sort of ai that allows you to demonstrate your ability then they could just get rid of schools, right? You don't have to go there. And Google's already sort of doing something like this, right? I mean, just as an example of sort of the cultural resistance, which I was reminded of, I was, you know, I wanted to lift a mortgage that I'd given because it had been paid off, you know, so get the mortgage note out of the land record office so that the person, if they ever try to sell the house, won't have to deal with that. And that was such a process you know getting like a notarized signature and just figuring out you know just finding the note in the records and that's a problem that could have been solved 30 or 40 years ago but every you know local jurisdiction has lawyers who make their living working with these complicated land records these needlessly complicated land records i mean fortunately this was computerized at least most of the, a lot of them in many towns are still on paper and it could have been fixed years ago you don't need blockchain or anything fancy to keep track of property titles but uh there's just this resistance to doing it on the part of the people who benefit from if you ever bought a house and bought title insurance did you ever think about what you were actually getting you were getting somebody who would pay in case there was a mistake a stupid mistake in the title records it's just it's it's the most frustrating thing but you can't get rid of it I have a friend who owns a title insurance company, and they're quite profitable. So, you know, it's, uh, there's a lot of people advocating for that. So, Another possibility I'm interested to see what you think is the government just as the repository of so much dark data, right? So much data available within the government. And, like, it strikes me that we had this national asset in that data that AI could potentially unleash with of course many regulatory and other privacy problems and things like that 
But it does feel like that is a huge place where the government, because, you know, we had this whole big data discussion 10 years ago or whatever about how the government, and we had open data and open government, but like it never really took off. So it's this example of like, maybe AI is the enabling technology to unleash the value of that data. Yeah. Well, one thing I can imagine it doing is providing enough disguises of data to protect privacy. So you could get data straight out of the census, but massaged by AI, or you could just say, or just have the AI just simulate and create completely simulated data that would have some of the same properties as, as if you'd taken it straight out of the census. There's potential. And I also see that they could provide, you know, when we talk about deep fakes or fake data or, you know, like, could the government also provide or through nonprofits or something sort of like verified data sets? So if you're asking questions about XYZ issue, you could create all these models, but you could always check it against, maybe you could check it against a verified database. So you'd have some, there'd be some like quality control there or, or limitation on fakes. So there's another, another place that I've heard some people starting to talk about with government. So you mentioned a few times, we talk, we kind of hit on some of these regulatory issues. Yeah, I mean, the other thing, by the way, is that, again, because you can communicate verbally with these large language models, is that just with the existing data, you could just run through a lot more hypotheses and ideas just because you could talk. You could just say, oh, I'm curious about you know, relating this variable to that variable, and you get an answer. You don't have to sit right in a statistical program. Any thoughts from you on how the government should be approaching regulating AI at this point? I guess I'm always lean toward a very light-handed regulation. And uh, I think that the regulatory impulse that's based on this theory that we've unleashed a new species is wrong and it's premature. And I don't know what to do about all these sort of copyright slash deepfake issues that are coming in. I think that's going to be a complex area. I agree. And I started saying, was it George Kaufman, the labor MP, said that there was some 1980s uh, party platform was the longest suicide note in history. I kind of feel like the EU AI law is the longest suicide note in history now. That that approach to regulation is going to destroy any kind of economic competitiveness there. What I fear is that, oh, you know, people in government will say, oh, it, this large language models, it's a new thing. Let's jump on it. And it's like they want to be relevant. They want to be able to get good jobs after they leave government. And so the, I think there's an incentive to just jump in much more quickly than is warranted. I just, again, and I mean, if you had the same kind of fears and attitudes in 1994 that we're seeing today with the large language models, the web could have easily just been stifled. I totally agree. I mean, I, I think some people pointed out to these books that people published in the early 80s about how personal computers were going to destroy the world. And like, so, so this kind of doomer anti-tech thing has been around forever, right? I mean, and just hasn't resulted. Well, I mean, people are making credible arguments about social media, so there's that. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I see that. I always interpret it as there are consequences to technology. That's, of course, true. There was a consequence to the printing press, right? We had 100 years of war in, in, in Central Europe, but um, it's not like we should have gone back and not 
had the printing press. So I just feel like the technology is capable of what it's capable of and you got to ride it and like trying to regulate it. I, I mean, where I agree with Zvi is what will happen is you will crush all the benefits and do nothing about the long-term potential doom scenario. That's what will happen. And if you read anything from the executive order at the White House, Schumer's legislation, the longest suicide note in history in Europe, that's exactly what those things do. Crush the benefits and protect current players. Right. So they'll make sure that your title insurance operating friend stays in business, but they won't do anything about the harms of deep fakes or something. Right, right. And they will, somehow they're going to figure out how to subsidize demand and restrict supply. So I think that will be the other thing that they will do. Right? That's Arnold's take on basically any policy that we implement is we restrict supply and subsidize demand. Because that's what the producers ultimately want. Exactly. So I, that was one of, actually one of the best insights I've heard. Okay, so kind of wrapping up a little bit, you address us a touch in early days, I remember writing about ChatGPT. You know, in 94, you were out in front on setting up this online real estate business. And you've learned a little bit over the last year. So if you were 30 years old, 35, whatever, what would be the business you'd be looking at starting today, based on what you say? One would be the education thing. Try to take successful mentors and teachers in various Things like many years ago, there was this guy Jaime Escalante, who got went into you know sort of ghetto school and had students succeed in calculus. Well, if you could clone him, in some sense, deep fake him, send him around, that would be great. And you know, similar with other great teachers, so that would be one. I think doing something with robotics would be another. I threw out an idea before this came out of a network-based university where you would, instead of going to a campus, you would interact with mentors and then periodically have what you might think of as retreats where you get to see people in person. I think that becomes even more plausible now that you have these. And I came up with this idea. I, I, was, I was frustrated that public discourse rewards kind of really low status behavior or sort of, host, you know, a lot of hostility and not much thought and not much talking across divides. And so I came up with this idea of fantasy intellectual teams where people would be, you would pick your team and then it the, turns out you're, the people you pick are graded on how well they can interact with the other side. So what was ridiculous about that was trying to grade people, but now uh, you can get an AI to grade people on how well they're interacting with the other side. So you built a GPT to do that. Was it a GPT? Yeah, and it took me, I, I'd say, less than two hours that I put into it. You know, I feel like I got it sort of 80% of where I wanted to be. To get the next 20% would probably take at least a few weeks worth of work, but it does most of what I would want it to do. It really criticizes somebody for... So just go back and say exactly, because I, I think I, kinda, I knew what the idea was, so why don't you explain? Okay, so the idea is I want to, instead of rewarding people for getting likes on Twitter or whatever, which they usually get for just dunking on the other side and calling people names and insulting people, reward people who consider other points of view, respect other people, 
and you know just act more like a high school debater you know where you have to be able to handle both sides than acting like you know the clowns on twitter and so i set up a chat gpt calls a gpt which is just their version of an app they already have an app store that has three million of these things in it and i have yeah, i have one of them and it gives you lots of feedback it doesn't just say well your your essay got a b plus it says you did well at this but you did badly because there's this other point of view that you didn't really consider and deal with well so the potential for something like that to change discourse, which I think is like a really important issue, changing public discourse, and just you know, that was something that was physically impossible to do before these large language models came out, and now it's really easy to set something up like that. That would be a good public service business for people. That's interesting. So, and in that process, sort of to refine the model. I guess you had to change the prompt, right? The, like the GPT doesn't learn the way you would expect, or does it as you use it? So the way it works is, you know, I say, okay, you are an expert essay grader. I want you to focus on these things. And then you test it and, and it comes back and, say, oh, and you say, well, no, you inserted this criterion, which wasn't really one of my criteria. So you're changing the prompt. You're just telling it more and more. So you are teaching it what to do. A lot of the GPTs, I think, are attempts to, first of all, interface with other things, like, again, make it, taking steps toward robotics. And I don't know. I mean, I haven't even, I mean, there are three million of them, and I haven't really delved into them. And that's, somebody's going to have to write a GPT that helps you sort out like this is what you like to do in your life here are the five gpts that you ought to try i mean that right now those three million gpts are like the web without google i mean it's just like <laughs> what do you do with it when you tell it that it did something wrong or to improve something are you doing that in the chat or are you doing that not on the other end where you're changing the prompt on the because you're kind of hard coding prompts on the creation side and then well the mechanics of that are i sort of reopen up the gpt and start chatting with it and then i save it when we've gone back and forth and it seems to understand what i how i want to modify it but it's it's again it's me using ordinary language in some sense to get the computer to do what i want that's that's really what it amounts i'm working on one that i want you to use arnold it's called spineless bureaucrat and what it does is it protects its job and it blames other people and does. And then when you accuse it of something, it like redefines the word and then blames other people for it. It's great. It works really well. So, <laughs> um, no, but I, I think that is these GPTs are the beginning of they're an entry level thing and who knows where it evolves to. So I don't know if they will become the basic infrastructure, but it does strike me that your ability to interact with something and train it over time becomes this, the new way you want to interact with information. Yeah, well, you, you'd have never gotten three million apps within a week of opening up an app store on Apple because people had to write code, but here you don't. And that's just a perfect illustration of the power of the, what I call the superpower of being able to talk to a computer in your own language. Three million in a week, I mean, by the end of the month, there are gonna be, you know, 
100 million of these. And so the challenge is going to be able to sift through them and find ones that you can use. And I see this other issue that clearly is going to get solved very quickly, this agent GPT idea, where I can have ChatGPT write code, but it doesn't then load it and make it into a program. I still have to know enough about coding to do all that stuff. But that's going to end very quickly where it's just like, hey, I want something that does this, right? And it'll just go do it and create it for you. So I think that's the last step in sort of software development piece. There's a guy, Marvin Liao, I think his name is. He he writes, he's a VC and writes, he has a Substack. It's interesting. And his thing was the the revolution to date was sort of creating software, which got you, you were racing to zero cost for compute with software. That's basically what it was. And now with AI, we're racing to zero cost for intelligence and insight. And so that's the goal we're on. It's like, basically, we're going to create insight and intelligence and everything, and it'll cost like almost nothing to get it. And that'll be the big unlock going forward. So, well, I think I've got three business ideas. I got to go start. So I got to go work on that. But uh, (laughs) I appreciate your time today, Arnold. Any final words on AI and government and where you see this going? No, I think we covered a lot and I enjoyed it. Excellent. Well, we appreciate you being on and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, thanks. AI, government and the future is brought to you by Corner Alliance. To find out more about Corner Alliance and how we work with government to create results, visit our website at corneralliance.com and then make sure to search for AI Government Future in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Corner Alliance, thanks for listening.